Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, you listen to the Gist of Freedom. I'm your host, uh, Leslie Gist, and we have Mr. Marco Williams online. Are you there, Mr. Williams? Yes, I am, Leslie. Thank you very much. Great. Hopefully, Dr. Greason will be available within a few minutes, but I didn't want to keep you on hold. So could you start off by introducing yourself to the audience? Uh, Sure. Uh, My name is Marco uh, Williams. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I've made several films about uh, race relations in America. Okay. And the one we're going to discuss tonight? Yes, we will be discussing my film Banished, which uh, broadcast on PBS in 2007 and has just finished a month of broadcast on the Stars Network, and Banished is about um, what for some is a little-known part of our history where white citizens expel their black neighbors, uh, leaving communities uh, all white to this day. And I focused on three of those uh, communities in the United States. Now, what was going on in 2007 which would prompt you to want to make this type of film? Well, let's see, I I finished it in 2007, so it was brought to my attention um, by the company that co-produced it with me, and that's an organization called the Center for Investigative Reporting. And they had approached me, actually. They had seen uh, my film, Two Towns of Jasper, about the dragging murder of James Burr Jr. in Jasper, Texas, in 1998. And they had heard me talk about that, and they had this uh, topic... Uh, banished, uh, brought to them by a journalist, and they asked me if I wanted to uh, make a documentary about this uh, narrative of our history. Okay. Um, for, your, for our audience um, who aren't familiar with uh, the Bird case, could you just give us a little snippet about that case? Uh, absolutely. In 1998 in Jasper, Texas, which is uh, a little bit east and north of Houston, um, James Burr Jr., an African-American man, was uh, dragged behind a pickup truck by three white men uh, who were subsequently arrested and had trials um, because of this lynching. And it was at the time, in 1998, probably the most uh, horrific racially motivated uh, crime in the U.S. since the Emmett Till murder. And the three men... Uh, all had affiliation with uh, racist organizations. They all had spent time in jail together, and they were members of the Aryan Nation. And they, in many ways, just created, it was a random act of violence in in that they were, well, I shouldn't say a random act of violence. In fact, they were driving around, and they saw James Byrd on the street, and they offered him a ride, and they took him to a 
a deserted part of the the town. Uh, they beat him up. They wrapped a chain around his ankles and they dragged him for three miles, zigzagging on the road um, until he died. That's terrible. Now, um, didn't President Obama have something or uh, do something that is connected to this case? Yes, I believe in his last, uh, uh, in his first term, he signed a hate crimes bill that is the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Jr. hate crimes bill. And Matthew Shepard was a young uh, gay man who was beaten and tied to a a post up in Wyoming uh, that same year. I think Matthew Shepard's murder occurred in the early part of, no, his murder occurred in October of 1998, and James Bird was murdered in June of 1998. Okay, well, thank you for giving us um, that information about both cases. Um, how can someone uh, see the film about James Bird, and uh, do you have any books, anything else related to that case that you would recommend people to purchase or watch or um, so the the movie right now is not in distribution. Uh, we're hoping to get it into distribution soon. Um, and, and the best way to kind of keep on touch with that is to um, go to our website, uh, twotownsofjasper.com. There were two um, books written about the murder, one by Joyce uh, King, and I have to apologize, I don't remember the title, and I'm not... Uh, don't worry about it. Yeah, I was just, I can't remember the title, but Joyce mm-hmm. King, and there's another a book written about the murder as well, and the author's name is eluding me. It's, you know, 15 okay. years ago, so I haven't been keeping track of it. But um, well, If but, it comes back to you later on, so you know, I'll, I'll just share mention it. it whenever you want. Um, now, let's get back to Banish. When they approached to do this film, what was your reaction when you got to some of the details about, um, you know, these towns expelling African-Americans, what did they, what was some of the first uh, items that you looked at and, you know, most profound reaction you had? Well, I, I, you know, frankly, as a black man in America, I, I will mm-hmm. say to you, I wasn't surprised. I know mm-hmm. a lot about sundown towns, you know, heard of that. Can't I mean even in I live in the north I know that I've had experiences in the north with proverbial sundown neighborhoods. Uh, but what I was really struck by with this is the extent of these um, incidents. I, I became aware of this through a journalist by the name of Elliot Jaspin, who is in my film and who had done some research and was actually writing a book. He was featuring 13 communities. And I think the, the, the most significant part of this is that there are a lot of uh, communities, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Wilmington, North Carolina, are two in particular where there were uh, race riots and effectively uh, entire black communities were were burnt down. But unlike Tulsa or Wilmington, North Carolina, the, the towns I focused on remained virtually all white um, at the point that I was making my film. So you could effectively describe those incidences as acts of racial cleansings. Whose idea was that to, you know, feature the racial cleansing 
Was that the initial goal, or was that something you thought of? Well, it, it's. It, I would say this. Uh, for the film, it was certainly mine. Uh, Elliot Jaspin wrote a book called Buried in the Bitter Waters that gives a very uh, specific historical account. My documentary looks at uh, these towns through the prism of African-American um, descendants, uh, families who are trying to learn about their history, trying to recover land, trying to recover family members who are buried in these towns. Uh, but the notion that it's a racial cleansing is the term is a very strong one, but it's also very accurate. If, if black people have been expelled and if they were part of the fabric of a community and they are no longer there, you could effectively say they have been cleansed from that community. Hence, a racial cleansing. Hmm. Well, I think once we're no longer there, it's really a racial uh, um, uh, blemish. You know, uh, yeah. when we're right. in our presence, it makes the place clean. Without us, or you know, when we're absent, the place is dirty. Well, that's so, an uh, interesting way of putting it. I've never heard the term a racial blemish, but that's—I uh, understand what you're saying. Thank you. Um, so when we talk about banished, let's start off with the first county. And um, I'd I like for you to include some of the descendants. And, you know, um, when you talk about the research in your first visit um, on location, how did the natives, the people that lived there, how did they receive you? You know, could you just give us a little... Uh, so the first uh, community uh, that I focused on is a is in Georgia. It's Forsyth County, uh, which is a county just outside of uh, where Atlanta is, and it it was the largest uh, expulsion of blacks I think at the time. I believe it was 1903, and I'd say that I think over a thousand blacks had been expelled. And the when I first went to visit, um, it's a large county, so it's not it's not so much it's a town, but I went I went to different uh, places, and I will say to you, I, I didn't see any black people. <laughs> but the story that I, I focus on has to do with a family, um, the Strickland family. That's kind of you know one of the families, uh, and they um, I spent time with them as they look to discover what became of the land that belonged to their ancestors. And uh, they they discover what seems to be um, that their land was effectively stolen. That is to say that they were expelled and they didn't have a chance to come back and recover the land and that at a certain point that land was sold to other people. And now there is a legal... Legal, there's part of our, our laws that allow for um, eminent domain, where if you uh, if you sort of live on a property after a certain period of time and nobody comes to claim it, you can claim it by eminent domain. But the reality here is that the blacks had been expelled; uh, they were kicked out, threat of death, life and death. It would be hard to imagine them coming back without fear of their lives. And so 
the Strickland family do discover that their land has been stolen, and what's really complicated for them is that the land has taken on a, a great deal of value, but the law does not really allow them to recover it at this point because the statute of limitations, the time in which you can return and bring a case in a court of law has expired. But the, this part of my film is really designed to get audiences to begin to think about what, really be thinking about this question, reparations, what should happen to that family? Is there a way to repair? Is there a way for them to um, make up for what they have lost? And it, and it opens up a lot of questions and issues that my film tries to, to examine. Okay. Let's go back prior to the Civil War. Or let's talk about this is the 150th um, anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And we, we're all familiar with the terms 40 acres and a mule. Um, how does that play into your story? And did any of these lands ever belong to the Confederates? Because we know during um, Reconstruction that once uh, they rebelled, that their land was no longer their land. And through the Freedmen uh, Law that they were able, blacks were able to purchase what we call abandoned land. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know if any of this land belonged to the Confederates. It doesn't really directly relate to the notion of 40 acres and a mule. Blacks mm -hmm. were living in this county. The Strickland family, their ancestors, owned the property. They owned the land. They were kicked out. They never returned. Uh, that land was subsequently sold. The, the people that I filmed in my documentary come to realize that there was land that belongs to them. In fact, there's a scene in my film where they return to uh, private property, but where there is a, a family cemetery, and it's their family cemetery. So, uh, you know, this happens 30 years post-Emancipation uh, Proclamation, 30 years after, so it really is not related to that part of of our history. Mm -hmm. And I just threw that out there because, you know, there's a, a lot of controversy uh, with the, the land on, on both sides, especially in the South. And I thought maybe um, doing your research would have film that some of these people claimed that they owned the land first. So that never did come up. No, because there's, there's you know, records that the Strickland family owned the land. So how they got the land, I don't know. Maybe it was through, you know, 40 acres and a mule. Maybe it was a re reconstruction. But they owned the land. And, you know, when, mm -hmm. when I made the film in 2003, 2004, the family goes back and looks through the, the land records, and they can see that their Morgan Strickland, one of their ancestors, um, you know, had the title. So that's how it – that's why we know it was their land. Now, have you been in touch with any of these, uh, the family members of Strickland, since the making of your film? Uh, I have not been in touch with the Strickland since, yeah, since the making of the film, since it was uh, screened at a festival in Atlanta and broadcast on public television. Uh, to my to my knowledge, they did they have not, uh, they never did recover the land, and as I said, the law does not really uh, give them a right to go to court 
to recover the land because by the time they sought, if they were to look to get the land back, it's over, it was over 100 years or over 50 years uh, from when the title finally went to somebody else, and you, you, can't, you, you can't wait that long to uh, go to the courts. Okay. Now let's move on to the next county. The next uh, family uh, I focus on were two brothers who live in St. Louis, and they were concerned with uh, what happened to their family in Pierce City, Missouri, which is in southwest Missouri, near the uh, Missouri-Oklahoma border. And there uh, in Pierce City, blacks were, were kicked out, and for these brothers... They uh, come to realize that one of their ancestors is still buried in the town cemetery, and they um, seek to have the town um, exhume that body so that they can bury their family member with other family members in another uh, community in Missouri, because they know that none of their family would like to return to a town where their ancestors were expelled. And in that story, it's fairly complicated again because the the town does not want, the town doesn't believe them at first. Uh, it's not really supportive. Um, and things change when the one of the brothers has has a copy of a newspaper from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I think 1901 or 1903, that actually... Uh, shows what happened, and then the the town um, coroner uh, helps out. And again, this is a part of my film that tries to ask the question of how do you make repair to somebody who's lost something? Do you is it enough? In this case, for the family members, initially it was enough just to have their grandfather exhumed and reburied someplace that's what they needed to find closure but it's again my film really while highlighting these incidents is trying to ask the question what's the best way to repair or resolve or reconcile these events is it a check is it a monument is it is it a is it the return of land is you know these are the questions that i was trying to ask in my film mm -hmm. Now, how did they decide which family to feature in this film? Because it sounds like, uh, from what you were saying, that they were working on exhuming his body prior to the film? Yes, they were. Mm -hmm. I made the decision because when you make a movie, at least when I make a movie, I'm trying mm -hmm. to tell a story. So I'm right. looking for people who are doing things that are moving forward in time. And so I was not making a film just about the past. I was looking at the past through the prism of of the present. So when I learned about these two brothers, I knew that they were trying to do something that was going to be happening during the time period that I was making the film. So it wasn't to kind of just have photographs and narration, uh, but it was to kind of you know follow their story. So I had heard about them and got in touch with them, and they agreed to be in the film. Wow. So it seems like they were getting a lot of publicity before you you discovered them. They were doing uh, a pretty good job. I don't know if it was job. a lot of publicity, but they were making an effort and uh, to to have this done, but they were not uh, at all successful. Mm 
Oh, okay. So um, were there any people that came to you once they found out that you were doing this film and said, you know, I need help, I'm going through something similar, can I be a part of your story? Did that happen? No, that did not happen. Uh, you know, since the film has been broadcast, people have, you know, come up, you know, come up to me or contacted me and, and talked about, you know, things with their family or, or land of their own. And certainly people ask me questions about why I didn't, cons- you know, include one community or another. But, you know, I was making a movie to try to highlight this episode in our history. I wasn't mm-hmm. making a movie to try to benefit any one particular family. If, if anything, I was hoping to, you know, raise a lot of questions that I would get a lot of people kind of engaged. Well, thank you. Very successful because the first time I posted your film on my Facebook page was a narr- narration. Um, I mean, I got a lot of hits, a lot of shares. Everyone had positive things to say about the film. And uh, with that being said, why do you think PBS um, decided to uh, broadcast it in 2008, what, what what do you think happened? Uh, I think they saw it as a, a good uh, story to shed light on our nation and our history and to ask questions. Uh, this was 2007. Uh, Obama, mm-hmm. you know, had nothing to do with mm-hmm. uh, Obama. Uh, it had to do with the fact because they they provided the license money even before Obama was running for president. So it just happened to be a story that I'd say most Americans didn't know about and probably a lot of Americans still don't know about. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Um, what do you think the recourse should be personally? Uh, I, I don't have a specific uh, feeling about what it should be, although I feel that I think that what I highlight in my film is that I think there are a lot of things that can make a difference to people. I think starting with an apology, an apology has a profound effect and impact on people. When somebody has done something, a transgression to me, or has done something that hurts me, if they say I'm sorry, that begins to help me to feel a feeling of kind of recovery. Um, I think that as highlighted in, in my film, in, in one of the towns, there's a man who says, you know, why isn't there a, a monument that acknowledges that the, there was an African-American community here? I think a monument is a way to kind of acknowledge our presence um, and that we're part of the fabric of history. And if you were driving through and, you you know, there, there was a, a sign that said a marker about the the black community in in Arkansas, uh, in I can't remember the name of the town in Arkansas suddenly, or in Pierce City, I think that would be really worthwhile. Hell, I think that the Strickland family should have gotten their land back, but they waited too long. So I think that you know, re- returning what belongs to somebody is really, uh, and certainly you know, potential a reparations check mm-hmm. could make a difference. I think all of those things, and I, in that regard, I'd say that. It really depends on the person or the situation, but I think something should be done as opposed to simply ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Now, in the other cases that uh, you mentioned early on about um, race riots and destroying the whole African-American community, many times they use something like uh, someone kissed or made a gesture at a white woman. 
in your third uh, 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 future town, what was the basis or excuse for ex- expelling the, uh, the blacks out of the community? In all of the in all of the communities that I I told my story about, and all the mm-hmm. research that Elliot Jaspin did in his book, there was always a, a an accusation of a something that a black man did to a white woman, mm-hmm. um, and in, and that that for whatever reason got the gander up of the white community, and they made a decision that they were going to. Uh, get back at at all the blacks, and that was the same same was true in Harrison, Arkansas, which actually had two incidents of racial violence and expulsion. Um, in which case, and in in that, you know, in the history, in many ways, in all these stories, because of the the violence perpetrated against the black community, there was never a a judgment found. There was nothing was ever brought to a court of law. You know, there was never a chance to find out if there was guilt or innocence. The white community just decided to uh, make a decision on their own about guilt or innocence. Yeah. So do you think that this was just an excuse that, you know, maybe they found out that it worked in one community, so let's just make this lie up about a black man uh, assaulting a white woman so that we can get the land? Uh, I, I never found any evidence specifically that that was the the explicit motivation, but certainly that was the end result. In Pierce City, there was some speculation of that because where the black community lived was on, you know, was on the other side of the railroad tracks, and yet it was good land. Uh, so there was some speculation about that. Something similar in Harrison, Arkansas. But I never found any uh, uh, clear-cut evidence of that. Mm-hmm. That sounds very interesting. Um, now, where has anyone organized any of the families? Have they started a movement um, for reparations? Or has, you know, no, uh, you know it's an interesting, uh, you know, question you ask. Uh, I think that in many, many instances, what I discovered in doing my work is that that a lot of the families, the people I had spoken to, they were aware of this, but they didn't really talk about it very much. I think there is a fair amount of shame mm-hmm. um, f- for the families over the years that they lost their land, uh, how it happened. So it was in many ways not talked about. So I would say to you that... Um, in that regard, no, there's not been anything organized among um, people to, you know, descendants. There's no, you know, website or anything like that that people might sort of organize themselves and say, let's let's try to put something together. Let's try to make people more aware. Uh, so, no, I don't know of anything like that. And who do you think is primarily responsible? Is it the for, government for allowing this to happen, like with lynchings? Uh, of course, the people who physically committed the act, you know, who who would you lay the blame, uh, lay the blame, or blame this whole act on? You know, who do you think is responsible foremost? Well, in each instance, white citizens expelled their black neighbors, so those those people are responsible. Was there yeah. a 
an attitude towards black people that might create an environment where whites might feel superior or compelled that this is the way to do it, where they threaten white people, threatened by black people. All that is true. All that's, you know, there's probably evidence of that. Jim Crow comes from that. Slavery is the foundation for that. So, you know, if one wants to make a big blanket, but it didn't happen in every community. It happened in these specific ones, and this is, and it was always the white citizens who perpetrated the crime. Okay. Now, what other projects are you working on? I've just uh, completed a documentary called The Undocumented that will be on PBS on April 29th on a series called Independent Lens, and The Undocumented takes a look at the immigration narrative in our country. It it highlights uh, an aspect of, of, of immigration that a lot of people don't know about, and that is that every year for the last 10, 15 years in the Arizona desert, uh, an average of 200 dead bodies have been found in the desert, and those are people who have died while crossing into the United States. So that will wow. be on TV in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's horrific. Hmm. Um, and how did that story come come to you? Uh, I had read a newspaper article about a town in, in the state of California on the border of Mexico where there was a grave digger and the and a mortuary director who were making an effort to bury all the unknown the unknowns, the people who died while crossing and I started to research that and learned about uh people in Tucson, Arizona doing the work to try to bring this this tragedy to light and I decided to make a film about it. Um, would you like to talk about the, the legal case, the Supreme Court case, the Arizona immigration law? Uh, I could a little bit. You know, reference it a little bit. I mean, I didn't really spend a lot of time examining that in particular, but that's not the first law that has been created by a state or a town or a county that tries to give power to the police to that if they stop someone to be able to ask questions about um, somebody's legal status, uh, I think that's uh, I, I I have personally I find it problematic because it's a um, it's a it's a racial profiling law, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I, I did do some research on on this facet and I met um, I met a family in in Virginia, where there was a young woman uh, who was undocumented because she had come across with her family uh, when she was a little girl, and she'd gone to school in the United States, and she speaks perfect English without an accent. Her mother, who who crossed, um, subsequently got uh, citizenship, barely speaks any English. What would be the basis of stopping those two people? You'd probably say the, the woman who can't speak English. That's racial profiling. So I think the law is quite problematic. Uh, I suspect that the Supreme Court is not going to uphold the law, and I think that you know, with all the, the movement in Congress to pass a comprehensive immigration 
reform that things are going to be somewhat different. It doesn't not going to prevent people from coming into the United States, but I think there's a, a changing attitude about immigration. Well, last question. You just mentioned three films, and it seems like your first one, which has to do with birds, um, had a positive outcome as far as politically speaking. What do you foresee with the the last two? Well, not last two. Well, the one that's about to be uh, released on PBS, and the one that we are here to discuss, Banished. I, I think you, Banished has had a positive, uh, you know, impact. It's been used a lot uh, mm-hmm. to get people to be thinking about questions of reparations, to be thinking about questions mm-hmm. of reconciliation. Uh, I hope with the undocumented, my current film, that it will get people to to be more aware of what's going on with regard to immigration and to, to be very conscious of the fact that people are dying and that if for no other reason, that's why we need to have a better set of laws regarding immigration. That's why we need to figure out the economics, that there are people who who are not able to work in their home countries because of certain economic policies in our country. We should not have blood on our hands, and I think right now there's blood on our hands because these bodies are found in the United States. Uh, I'm sorry. I I have to ask you about the DREAM Act. Sure. Do you touch on the DREAM Act in the film? No, I don't. Go ahead. All it says, my film looks at a very, very specific part of the immigration narrative, and that is the fact that people are dying trying to get into this country. My film doesn't look at the law in Arizona, the DREAM Act, no amnesty, but all of that is, of course, related, and those are the things that we know about. I think that the DREAM Act is admirable. I mean, many of the the young people who are, you know, for whom the DREAM Act would benefit didn't choose to come to the United States. They came because their parents brought them here. I don't think they should be penalized, and in fact, because of the value of education in our society and throughout the world, giving those young people a chance to go to college without fear of being deported, who knows, any one of them could be the next president of the United States. You know, they could come up with a cure to cancer. Uh, They they want to go to college in order to make a contribution to society. Uh, They should not be uh, penalized for uh, actions that they had no, made no, decision to do they simply were children as we know children rarely get a chance children don't tell their parents what to do parents tell children what to do wonderful and uh, I promise this is the very last question but you know you're a lot of fun to talk to Um, and I like listening to you Um, the farmers they some sort of the black farmers some sort of reparations under Obama's presidency do you think that may happen with Danish if um, they go the same route that the farmers did? Well, here's the thing about reparations and what I learned. You know, our first thought is that when something like this happens, go to court, sue in court, you'll, certain things can happen. But, again, there's a statute of limitations. So any any repair has to happen through a legislation, legislature. It has to happen by virtue of somebody deciding to do it. And so take Rosewood, um, Florida. Four families receive reparations for that, for the burning down of that town. And that comes as a result of the Florida state legislature 
making a decision to provide something back to those families. It's not through a court of law, it's through a decree. So the only way for families, and you have to begin to ask which families, where are they, who's going to do the research to to highlight all of these instances. Now maybe that starts with Elliot Jasmine's book. He, he features 13 communities. Uh, it, it requires people to, who, who are the descendants to speak up. And sure, somebody could. Could it be a national uh, thing? I doubt it. Uh, John Conyers, uh, you know, for years tried to simply get a a resolution in Congress to uh, acknowledge uh, slavery and acknowledge some sort of form of reparations for slavery. It's never happened. So I don't really imagine it's going to happen with banished, with what happened to the people, um, the families who lost land. Um, you know, as a result of these racial cleansings. Well, uh, Professor, I had a wonderful time talking to you. I want to apologize for Dr. Grecian not being here to be the one to interview you, but I hope I did a good job, and I hope you're satisfied. Thank you very, th- thank you very much for having me. Um, it was a, a pleasure, and have a good night. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> 